imagine nothing less than a pandemic would commend repeating the same sermon within nine months. Welcome to 2020. A year of many strange firsts for us in a lot of ways, but you may remember back to February, uh, we started a biblical theology series on the theme of God's Word, a sermon series that we were forced to suspend almost as soon as it started. And as I thought about coming back to that series now, uh, at this point in our time together, I thought this, that first sermon was so vital and foundational to what uh, we are doing and the, all that is coming in the series that I think it really commends repeating. So I've rethought the, the sermon. Uh, we'll see what you remember from February, but at any rate, uh, I think it is good review for some and, and a number of us that, we're not, uh, that are here today that were not part of that time together. But for us to revel again in the Word of God, as we see it in these first chapters of Genesis. Let's go into this series again as we come back to where we were in February, and just to remember this profound word in the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. It is life itself, the Word of God. Jesus, of course, quoting that text. In Numbers 32, Moses said to Israel, God's word is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live. We worship a God who speaks and whose word is life-giving, life-transforming, authoritative truth. And it's my earnest prayer that this series will, if God permits us to continue through, will serve more firmly to establish us in the bedrock of God's Word as an assembly. I pray it will help shape our relationship to the Lord by heightening our knowledge of the nature of His Word and a deeper conviction of its truth, authority, beauty, and power to sanctify God's people. So to begin a series on the Word of God, we turn uh, to the beginning, to the Genesis. I invite you there to Genesis chapter 1. But we find here, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1, God's Word creates life and causes it to flourish. It creates life, the Word itself, and causes it to flourish. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The first sentence of Scripture is so loaded with meaning that people spend all of their lives in rebellion against it or in joyful reception of this word from the Lord. The psalmist certainly was one who rejoiced when he said, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood 
in the beginning, unlike other world religions, Christianity is tethered to historical event. Our faith is not merely a set of principles by which to live. More fundamentally, our faith is grounded in a story, in an account of history. God rescuing His people in time and space for His glory and for our eternal good. So in the beginning, with respect to the Word of God, in the beginning orients us to hear all of God's words in their historical redemptive context. Verse 1, God creates the elements of the universe through His words. Verse 2, we have a parenthetical statement which builds anticipation of God's creative acts to follow. I picture this like a highly acclaimed Broadway play. The, all the lights go down and the crowd waits in expectant silence, waiting for that curtain to part and the stage to be flooded with light. That's where we are here in a sense in verse 2. Or a different picture, the Holy Spirit hovering like a bird over a nest, all in foreboding darkness, all is chaotic shapelessness, the elements of the universe blindly waiting direction. With that setting, the lights come on in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Starting to give form and spacing and beauty to the elements that He created, God speaks and creation is flooded with light. And with each successive day, God continues to speak. And what is awesome about it is that as the creation begins as things begin to be put together the first thing that we see isn't actually the first thing first we hear God speaks let there be light as Genesis 1 unfolds we witness three effects of God's word first God speaks and the universe he speaks the universe into existence we can't miss that repeating phrase here in chapter 1 you see it in verse 3, and God said, in verse 6, and God said, in verse 9, and God said, in verse 11, and God said, verse 14, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26. Even a child with a highlighter would know what to highlight here. God speaks, and it is His power. This beyond imagination, his words spoken bring this universe into existence. And God said. So he speaks the universe into existence. Secondly, God names what he creates. We notice that there in verse 5 as he called the light day. And as we move down through the darkness, he called light. In verse 8, he called the expanse heaven. In verses 9 and 10, he called the dry land earth and the waters. And he, he called the seas. Then days 4 through 6, filling out the spaces that God created and named on days 1 through 3. So he creates with his word. He names. And then thirdly, he blesses. We see that in verse 22. The sea creatures, God blesses them saying. He speaks and then with His voice commissions. He speaks and blesses. 
verse 28 of chapter 1, and God blessed them, speaking of Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed. God speaks as he blesses his people. And in verse 26, we even see God deliberating. To go back to that point, deliberating in speech. Verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God deliberating. Who's God talking to at this point? I don't think it's verses 24 and 25. He's talking to the animals. Let us make man in our image as if the animals were going to join him as creator. Of course not. Some propose a divine council of angelic beings. Others would argue that this is Trinitarian conversation. In any event, God is communicating before man is created, and that's significant. God does not create Adam and Eve to have someone to talk to. He's already talking, He's already communicating before they are created. God's dialogue in verse 26 reveals that he is by nature a God who speaks, enjoying Trinitarian dialogue from eternity past. The wonder of that reality comes to light here in verse 28 as God creates man as male and female. Verse 27, then graciously condescends to enter into conversation with them, with us. God blessed them and said to them. Now communicating to Adam and Eve. And one way or another, all religions labor to tap wisdom from the divine realm. But prior to Jesus, only Israel's God relates to people by speaking to them. In divine speech, so powerful that it materializes the universe is now employed to pour out rich blessing and to bestow a noble mission upon the two creatures made in God's image. He says, I've given you, verse 29, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I've given every green plant for food, and it was so, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. What does Genesis 1 teach us about God's Word? Just some principles that we can draw from here, and I've kind of fine-tuned these since we looked at this in February, but The one true and living God speaks. Speech is integral to His nature and salvation plan. Secondly, God's Word is inseparable from God Himself. What the Word of God does, God does. We would know that. We don't separate out what people say from the person. We realize that as they speak, they speak of themselves. It is in a sense, but in, in, a, in a heightened sense, in an infinite sense, God's Word is God, what He does. 
cannot separate the two. John Frame says this so well. When we encounter the Word of God, we encounter God. When we encounter God, we encounter His Word. God's Word and His personal presence are inseparable. His Word indeed is His personal presence. Whenever God's Word is spoken, read, or heard, God Himself is there. Third, God's words have the power to create and sustain life, giving it form and beauty. We see that in a physical sense here as we work our way through the series, how we will see this in a spiritual sense. It's God's word that ignites life, sustains it, and beautifies it in our lives as his people. Number four, God's word is distinct from creation. It's not part of creation, but nature displays God's glory, provides media by which God reveals himself, but nature is not itself God's word. What His word spoke the world into existence. It wasn't part of it. And number five, God's, word, God's words assert His sovereign authority over all creation. As He creates, as He names, as He blesses. His word is sovereign. Now we pause here and say, in our church, with a deep devotion to Scripture, a knowledge that yes, indeed, it is the Word of God, these things seem fairly straightforward. I doubt that any member of our church would look at these five points and say, I think that's way off track. We say, yes, it makes perfect sense, and we rejoice in these principles that we see here in, these, in this first chapter of Genesis. But I want to stress that there are people in Christian churches, Christian in name, that deny each one of these points to some degree or another. So I'm, I'm drawing this from Genesis 1, but I'm putting it together with the world in which we live and specific arguments against each one of these five in churches that claim the name of Christ and meet around us today. It's more important than we might recognize to be very decisive and clear on what God's Word is in its very nature. And more to this in a, in a few moments as we look through the next chapters. But having painted the creation account in broad strokes in chapter 1 through 2-3, Genesis 2-4 zooms in for a closer, more detailed look at creation. And we learn, secondly, that God's Word authoritatively directs the path that our lives must take. As we come to chapter 2, we'll move forward to verse 15 where we read, the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of this garden that you are keeping. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in verse 15, God assigns to Adam a place to live and a job to do. In verse 16, granting to Adam and Eve the freedom of this paradise to enjoy it, with one exception, verse 17, and that's 
not to eat of this tree that's been identified. Now, Adam is clearly capable of disobeying God's word. That's assumed here. But God explicitly warns Adam of the dire consequences of disobedience. So even by giving him the warning, it's clear that he has the freedom to not obey the word of the Lord. I mean, it should put chills up our spine to even think of it. This one who speaks the world into existence, you may disregard his word. If you do, here are the consequences. Now, the Bible spends no time belittling God by offering proofs of his existence. And equally, it spends no time belittling God by arguing to prove his right to tell his creatures what they should do and what they should not do. He spoke the world into existence. He clearly has absolute authority over his creation and can speak any word that he chooses. And this authority assumes Adam's total obligation to honor everything that God says. Since God's word creates and sustains the universe, the most irrational thing that one could ever do is to defy that word. When God says, don't do it, we must not do it. When God says, this is good, this is my blessing, this is my way, walk in it, we must value, love, honor, and obey that word. If he calls us to trust him and to put our hope in his promises, we must. We are privileged to do so. Well, if there's any doubt, God does not issue his authoritative word for Adam's good. That's settled when he deliberates and creates woman. What God is doing is for Adam here. It is for her as well as he places them in paradise. And that's where we end here in chapter 2. Adam and Eve occupying paradise. They inhabit a world untainted by pollution, by disease, by natural disaster. They inhabit a world of no pain, of no injury, of no disease, foul weather, natural disasters, accidents, war, or injustice. There they stand with flawless bodies surrounded by delicious food and stunning natural beauty in a pristine world. And on top of it all, the creator of the universe comes to converse with them in the evening and to share with them the mysteries of this beauty. All that they must do to retain, to keep paradise, is to obey God's single negative command. What not to do. We notice that God's word to Adam in all of this is real speech. Adam knows that God is talking to him. He's communicating with him. And there's really no question about what God has said. It's very clear. He understands it in his language. And because God speaks with absolute wisdom and absolute authority, Adam and Eve must obey and honor everything that God says. It's the only rational thing to do. 
And indeed, it is their privilege to do so, for God's Word is always meant for our ultimate good. But God clearly identifies a serious danger. And that is we can heed God's Word for our good, or we can disobey that Word to gain immediate satisfaction, which will always end in disaster, in ruin. That's what He shares with Adam and Eve. And this sad possibility brings us, of course, to Genesis chapter 3. And we learn here thirdly that God's word can be twisted and disobeyed to our detriment. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The sense of the Hebrew text here is, are you serious? God said that? He really told you not to eat from the trees of the garden. Honestly, that really surprises me. Possessing and speaking through the serpent, Satan sets a lying trap for Eve. Notice that Satan attacks what? He attacks God's word. God said that? He cast doubt then by attacking God's word upon God's goodness. I'm surprised God would place such a demand upon you poor people. Why is that? Eve hastens to clear up what she seems to believe is the serpent's confusion. Verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Having engaged Eve in conversation, Satan now directly contradicts God's word. The attack started there, and now it continues there as he he just flatly denies what God has said. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Not the truth. It's not the facts. The Hebrew here is also instructive in that God has said, we could put it into direct English, dying, you will not die. You will certainly, surely, absolutely, you will die. You will, you will absolutely, surely die. Satan takes that and turns it right on its head and said, you will absolutely not die. Not dying, you will die. Having asserted that God's word is untrue, it is untrustworthy, Satan moves to the logical next step. God himself cannot be trusted. So we notice here that Satan sees what a number of liberal theologians do not see, and that is that God's word and God's person are one. You cannot separate his word from his person. So Satan gets this, and he said, his word to you is bad because God himself is bad. He's not for you. And this word of limitation, this command of what not to do is against you. It's not for your good. Verse 5 Here's his argument. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's some truth in that, just not the truth they took from it. 
And there's some horrific implications because there is not truth in the statement that you will be like God. But the temptation is there. The trap is laid, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was. And it was a delight to the eyes. It was. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. No. No, no, no. She took of its fruit and ate, and she, gave, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. He's standing in the shadows as she falls into sin. He, following her willingly into that sin, says no to the Word of God. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So breaking God's word, they fall into a state of sin and shame. Satan entices Adam and Eve to rely on human autonomy, to determine for themselves whether or not God's word is true and good or whether it is false and harmful. So they were not wrong to exercise reason. Their sin was relying on reason to justify disobedience to the Creator, which is utterly irrational and very, very familiar with us. The word that created the universe is not a word you can disobey with any prophet ever. But suddenly Adam and Eve, overwhelmed with a new and debilitating self-awareness, seek to cover their shame. We learn, number four, that God's Word graciously confronts, convicts, counsels, and converts sinners. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. These are horrifying words. The God they looked forward to speaking with and communing with day by day. I cannot imagine the joy, the anticipation, the wonder of those conversations. And now, they hear Him coming and they hide. Disobeying the word of the Lord has not turned out to blessing. It hasn't turned out to flourishing. It's turned into shame and running. But the Lord God, verse 9, called to the man and said, Where are you? God's question does not seek knowledge that he lacks, of course, but graciously draws Adam out of hiding so God can confront him and draw him to repentance. Where are you? I heard you, verse 10. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. 
Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, we see that God speaks. His words are hard for Adam and Eve to hear, and as we get to verse 14 and following, they get harder as He issues His curse upon them. Yet, God does not snuff out Adam and Eve's life as they deserve. He begins wooing them to repentance with His words. And it brings us to 3 in verse 15, in the curse upon the serpent, there is a promise to the man and to the woman, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head. You shall crush his heel. Same Hebrew word. He he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Adam indeed responds to this promise of this one who will come from the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. And it's clear that it's more than just biological offspring, but that there is a faith connection to some. And this one will come through that offspring to crush the head of the one who got you to turn away from my word, to say it that way. And Adam, naming wife Eve, demonstrates faith and confidence in this one that would come, this plan of God, this provision of this son who would come to bruise, crushing to death Satan's head ultimately. Now let's stop for a moment and just think of this this primal temptation. It warns us against the danger of trusting autonomous human reason over God's word. It reveals the danger of thinking my reason, my intuition, my experience determines what is right and what is wrong for me. Relying on ourselves over trusting God's Word always leads us down a very dark path. It does not end well, ever. But this primal temptation also alerts us to Satan's scheme to attack the authenticity, the wisdom, and the goodness of God's Word. This is where the battle is at for us all the time. He labors to undermine God's Word, to get us to doubt its goodness, to doubt its trustworthiness. Not this time. Not for me. Not now. And so, for instance, Satan wins. He lures us away from God's good Word Every time we choose to wallow in bitterness and self-pity rather than to love others, to be thankful, and to rejoice in trials. Satan wins when we turn to illicit sex or pornography for pleasure or find our identity in a job or money. He wins when we discount God's word by choosing to lie to protect our interests, to steal what is not ours to stumble into intoxication or gossip in order to look good in the eyes of others. Whatever it is, His words are many. His counsel is rich and full. And how often we listen to what Satan says, this word is not good this time, not for you. Our hope is right where Adam and Eve's hope is. If we could just put it to one verse, it's verse 15 of chapter 3. Our hope is this one who will come to crush Satan's head. This one, this one indeed who is called the Word. The Messiah who will come. 
and whose death will pay the cost of sin in the stead of the sinner as the Lamb of God substituting His life for ours. That's how He bruises, how He crushes to death Satan's head. Adam and Eve didn't know all the nuances of that account. They didn't know where this prophecy was leading. But as the Bible unfolds, it is in this one who through his death crushes Satan's agenda and redeems those who trust in him. He rises from the dead. So the death that Adam and Eve deserve because of their disobedience, what they indeed experienced eventually in their judgment, this one, this Messiah, this seed of the woman, this Lord Jesus Christ pays that cost for us and rises to give us life in His name. If you've not trusted that message, let me say, as we speak of God's Word, it is insanity not to. Come to trust in Him today, what He's done to give you life and hope and salvation. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, God's Word confronts, it convicts, it counsels, just as it did as it brought us to conversion. So it continues to, con- to confront us, to bring us conviction of our sin It counsels us the direction that we should take and it turns us back away from our sin time and time and time again. And if that's a pattern in your life, believer, rejoice. It's God's goodness to you. It's His goodness to me to see my sin, to see where I break the law of God and to turn, to repent. Christ's death and resurrection provides the forgiveness then that comes as we walk in relationship with this one, not hiding in the weeds, not hiding behind the trees, but coming out into the open and saying, I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. So to summarize again, first five points by way of review, and then we'll add three more from chapters two and three. The one true and living God speaks. Speech is integral to his nature and salvation plan. God's word is inseparable from God himself. What the word of God does, God does. God's words have the power to create and sustain life, giving it form and beauty. God's word is distinct from creation Nature displays God's glory and provides media by which God reveals Himself, but nature is not itself God's life-giving Word. God's words assert His sovereign authority over all creation. And we've learned that in chapters 2 and 3 that God's Word is clear, objective, and authoritative, such that it becomes our total obligation and glorious privilege to obey and honor everything that God says. That does not mean that this is always a simple process. Sometimes it's hard to know what God thinks, what His Word is saying, how we apply it to life. Understanding that, He is not giving us His Word to confuse us. It's clear, it's objective. It has absolute authority. Number seven, God's word is under constant assault from Satan's lies and God's people are continually subject to Satan's deceptions which they must learn to resist. 
there is always a work against your soul to not listen to what God has said. Doesn't apply to me, not this time, it's not the best way forward, it's not rational, I think I can get away with this. That type of assault is upon us until we meet Jesus. We just got to live with it, and we got to learn to live with it, and learn to fight it, and learn to think God's thoughts after him, not cave in to what Satan says to dissuade us from that word. Number eight, God's word is our rescue from sin and judgment, our pathway to human flourishing, our hope for eternal glory. And obviously that word is personified in the living word, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't want to separate Christ from that word, but we recognize, of course, that we're not talking about just a book a printed book, the Bible. We're talking about the Word, a relationship with the risen and reigning and returning Son of God. Again, I stress here that even with these added three, as with the first five principles that we draw as, out, as a foundation, that there are those who claim the name of Christ, who do theology in a certain way, who deny each of these statements. Christian churches that gather around us in the name of Christ who are actively working against each line one way or another to one degree or another. This is a heritage that we have and a calling to defend it. May God's word be seen for what it truly is in Eden Baptist Church's life together. May we not forget that what our future, that our future as a church, our future as faithful Christians is staked in these realities. We cannot let go. And why would we ever want to? These words are our life. They are our hope. They are that which is transforming us into the likeness of Christ. By God's grace, then, may we use this series as we move on through various texts of Scripture in a biblical theological line to deepen our foundation in the bedrock truth of God's holy word in the face of His eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the bedrock for our souls. May we stand on it. May we cling to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We're thankful for Christ, our word that saves. The living word that gives us life in his name. We praise you for that message and pray that you would continue to deepen and strengthen us as an assembly. And Lord, we recognize that in some ways we can live by the sea and become so accustomed to the water that we don't notice it. And so, in a manner, we can live in the Word of God, reading it often, feeding upon it, seeing it, understanding it, hearing it proclaimed in the church, and miss the wonder of it. I pray that we would take, even to the literal sea, a childlike joy that never 
gets over the wonder. And that that childlike joy would be focused upon you, our God, and your word. To never, ever take it for granted. The wonder, the splendor, the life-giving strength of your word. Deepen us to that end as an assembly. May we stand upon it. May we be willing to resist the forces against it. And may your grace grant us trust and truth through that word. In the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.